It's said that the NHS is its people, but really it's also buildings and equipment. For the last few years, money that had previously been spent on maintaining those buildings and equipment has instead been spent on propping up service provision. And now it's come to a crunch point. Our former Chief Executive at University College London Hospital, Naylor is sometimes called Bob the Builder because of the massive overhaul of that campus. He demolished four separate buildings and created one new huge hospital. He now wants to bring that radical change to the rest of the NHS. I caught up with him at the launch of his report and you'll hear halfway through the interview we switched to the phone. That's because we ran out of time. Yeah, although it's fair to say that the uh, total capital allocations have increased year on year, it's not been sufficient to uh, keep pace with the infrastructure demands of the NHS. So, um, and that's been exacerbated in uh, the last uh, couple of years because the um, Department of Health decided to um, um, take some of the capital funding to support the ongoing running costs mm -hmm. of the NHS. So the £4.8 billion pounds a year that was allocated by government to the NHS for capital was reduced to 3.6. My report makes it pretty clear that if we carry on doing that, um, then the uh, impact on uh, the NHS, particularly on acute hospitals, is that backlog maintenance will continue to increase. And that maintenance is not just buildings. Is it equipment? What else is kind of included in the estates? Of course, the major cost of capital spending is in maintaining buildings, maintaining equipment within buildings, ventilation systems, heating systems. Any aspect of uh, a hospital operation uh, um, is going to require some capital investment at some stage. We've had a, um, a number of examples uh, where hospitals have uh, um, said that the safety of patients could be compromised unless more investment is put into uh, the infrastructure that supports the um, uh, the needs of those patients. Mm. Um, and you talk about the fact that over time the sort of the voice of estates in, in NHS decision making kind of diminished um, with reconfiguration of services and, and so on. Um, was that a deliberate plan or was that just kind of a, an oversight when, when these plans were, were drawn up? No, I, I think it's just the, the, the impact of a, a series of restructurings and reorganisations of the NHS almost ever since it started. Mm -hmm. um, uh, nowadays, um, estates is, rep is only represented in the second or third level of individual providers. Um, and providers, hospitals, are much more interested in the day-to-day -day tactical mm -hmm. issues, whereas the whole strategic vision for estates management has effectively disappeared over time. My report says that we need to uh, re-provide some of that, and the uh, recommendation to create, which has been accepted by the Secretary of State, to create the uh, new NHS property board is a real, really positive step in that direction. Mm. Um, and you talk about underutilised real estate. What is that actually looking like? Are, we, are you saying that there's sort of bed space that's there that's not needed? What, what do you mean by that? Kind of? Well, we, we, we've, we've looked at the estate in terms of uh, 
um, estate which is simply unused. So there are many examples of uh, parcels of land um, um, on hospital sites and in other parts mm. of the NHS um, that just are not used at all. And that, that space could be uh, um, uh, reprovided um, um, for new residential homes. Um, so there's clearly a lot of unused space and then there's a lot of underutilized space mm -hmm. and then there's poorly efficiently used space. So there are some examples um, around the NHS of where there are several hospitals duplicating services in close proximity to each other and uh, there might be a strong business case to reprovide all those hospitals in a new facility. Um, and to fund that by the sale of the uh, sale of the assets of the original three hospitals, mm. a good example of that that uh, that I quoted on a number of occasions is Moorfields Hospital, uh, um, uh, the the leading ophthalmology research uh, centre in the world, um, operating from pretty decrepit facilities in central London, hugely valuable site. Um, they have wanted for a, a long time to reprovide their facilities on another hospital site, which is owned by a different hospital trust. Mm -hmm. um, but they can only provide that space if they move things off that site into another hospital owned by another part of the NHS. So it's bringing this fragmentation together is, uh, is really important. So the, but the consequence of all of that um, um, would be to reutilize all of these sites in a much more efficient way and using the sale proceeds of these assets to invest in new facilities to practice 21st century medicine. Mm. Now, the other bit we wanted to talk about was um, your plans for you know, what to do with that land, how to actually uh, make money from it in a way that would be perhaps a bit more socially responsible and by providing um, effectively shared ownership property for uh, medical staff. Is that right? Um, well, I, I have two questions there. I think, I mean, the first, the first part of the question is, 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 um, is the NHS obviously needs to maximise the value of its its land disposals. It hasn't been very successful at that in the past. It has tended to sell off its old property to the to the to the highest bidder, the highest property developer bidder. Um, and what it needs to do is to maximise the value in order to have sufficient resources to provide new facilities. So, you know, the the, the report says that um, the NHS needs to be more commercial in its approach. Um, it needs to uh, work with the local planning authorities to maximise planning permissions to increase the value of properties rather than let property developers take all the profit out of the uh, land disposal. Um, so clearly that's very important for, um, um, uh, for the NHS to, uh, to ensure that it maximises its value. Um, but it needs to also work with um, uh, local government in order to address the question of social responsibility. Um, uh, but, but, you know, that's all about collaborating with the local authority. So, for example, in the London report, which has not been published, we've had some very constructive and positive discussions with the GLA to talk about how can we achieve our objectives and they achieve them at the same time. Mm. Um, so that's really what uh, um, providers need to do is to uh, uh, is to is to maximise the planning opportunity for land, which in turn maximises the value, and that produces more funding 
hopefully to be met by the Treasury to provide new facilities for hospitals and primary care. But I was just thinking, you know, when you look at Moorfields, um, the site that you, you do mention in your report and, and what they're going on there, you know, literally across the road from, from them, there is, you know, shared ownership housing that it's not affordable. You know, it's, it's going to cost whoever moves in there two grand a month for a one-bedroom flat. And, you know, it seems like this might be a great intention, but even if it goes ahead and, you know, property is built, it won't necessarily be affordable for, for the majority of NHS. Yes, yes. Well, so um, so we've, we've we thought about this uh, a lot, and um, I think, as you're implying, it's um, unlikely that there will be a lot of affordable housing in central London because property values are so high, but that's the case in every city throughout the world. Um, what, we, what we're proposing is that the affordable housing should be built on properties on the periphery of London, um, not in the centre of London. So, as I, as I say um, in the London report, there are um, a large number of potential property developments um, uh, and there are, I mean, the majority of the, the vacant land is on the periphery of London, not in the centre of London. So if you take the Moorfield mm. site, the Moorfield site is a relatively small site, um, but extremely valuable because you're likely to get um, uh, uh, high-rise planning permission for that site. So it, the central mm. London sites are more likely, you're going to increase the value of them if you build high-rise office accommodation rather than residential accommodation. Whereas on the periphery of London, where you're not likely to get high-rise developments, then you're more likely to be able to provide affordable housing. So, um, but at the moment, unfortunately, people like you and many people who work in the NHS can't afford either. They can't afford the very high-cost uh, property in central London and the property on the periphery of London um, that's, um, uh, that's private. Uh, private development is also too expensive. So the idea really is to negotiate with the GLA and to, and to agree a strategy whereby the uh, affordable housing is built on the periphery of London, um, ideally near to good transportation links, and the high cost, uh, the high value properties in central London are more likely to be developed as office accommodation. The last question I have really, I suppose, is in terms of timeline for, for all of these things. I mean, you've talked about um, the fact that, you know, this will be decades long, potentially. Um, but when do you think things can start? And when do you think those the actual plans about the, the things that need to be done will be put in place and, and, and kind of ready for consultation? Well... Things, things have already started in the sense that there have been a lot of um, preliminary discussions about uh, both the national report and indeed some of the national report has already been implemented, such as the establishment of the NHS property board. Um, uh, but the more detailed discussions really can only um, progress once they are aligned with the developing STP plans. Um, so effectively, what the national report does, it sets out the, the strategy and the rules of the game um, in future for estate development. Um, but each STP has to interpret that in their own local circumstances. Um, and as far as London is concerned, we decided to give that a kickstart by producing the London report 
to encourage the, the high-value propositions in London to move at a faster rate. Of course, London is a lot more complex than the rest of the country because um, London not only has the GLA, but it has 32 London boroughs, all of which um, have um, uh, 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 understandable um, vested interests. Um, so, you know, the whole of the London report implementation um, uh, will take a long period of time. Just to put that in perspective, if you look at what we did at UCLH, um, if you're familiar with that, um, it's, you know, I was there for 16 years and we haven't completed it yet. So this isn't a, this, this isn't a short-term fix. This is a long-term strategy. But, you know, it's fair to say the sooner you start, the sooner you'll get results. So um, it's now up to, um, up to the politicians and governments to formally respond to what is my independent report, but, uh, but commissioned by them, um, uh, and for the STP process to, uh, to, uh, um, to make progress and for that to inform the services that need to be provided for the five-year forward view and the, uh, and the estate is an enabler to make that happen. Does that make sense to you? Yes, yeah, no, no, it does, mm -hmm. it does. Um... And I was going to say, now that you've done your report and, you know, the, the, the property board is going to be established, um, are you going to have any more role in this? What's, what's... Um, well, I think that's, that's, that, uh, that will depend upon the government's response to my report, whether they, whether they want me to have any more involvement or indeed whether I want to stay involved in it. So that's, uh, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's obviously a discussion that we'll have when the, um, when the government have made their response. Um, but I'm I'm still the national advisor um, to the NHS, um, and you know will be privileged to continue to support the NHS in this extremely important area of work for as long as um, uh, that's useful to the NHS. Uh, and uh, in terms of that response, have you any idea when that will be coming? Well, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's up to the government to decide. I'm not, I'm, um, you know, of course, yeah. to, but I mean, nothing's going to happen this side of the general election because of PERDA. Um, and I would hope that the government will make a response to my report uh, um, as soon as possible after that. But I mean, it's very, very clear to me that I've been working you know, I haven't been working entirely independently. I've been, you know, uh, located within the Department of Health. I've had regular discussions with ministers and Secretary of State and civil servants. And I've tried to shape mm -hmm. my report in a, in a way that's going to be useful to them rather than, uh, you know, to be supportive of, um, of, of the direction in which they're going. So I would hope that um, um, the report will be... Um, warmly accepted by the government. It seems to have been very well received by everyone else um, so far. Um, there have been, to my knowledge, no negative comments about the report. It's all been extremely positive. Um, but of course, the bottom line is asking the government for more, for more money. That's, the, that's the, the critical issue. And it will be up to the, uh, the government and the Treasury in particular to make decisions um, during the course of this summer um, um, uh, I mean, you'll, you'll remember I said in my presentation that uh, Chancellor Exchequer for Philip Hammond has made it clear that um, uh, more funding may be available later in the year if there are robust um, uh, 
and coherent plans um, um, yes, submitted yeah, yeah. by the STPs. So, to my mind, um, the Treasury has left the door uh, open, and um, the NHS needs to get its act together and step through it and come up with coherent plans which are acceptable to the Treasury and, uh, and are affordable within the context of uh, my recommendations. As Robert mentioned there, the estimated cost of the capital investment needed is £10 billion. Money the Exchequer seems unwilling to commit to at the moment. In the past, the way this kind of capital investment was kept off the public books was through PFI deals. And recently, in the Times, it was reported that Jim McKay, who's chief exec of NHS Improvement, has suggested that money could come directly from hedge funds. At the Naylor Report launch, I also spoke to Richard Murray, who's Director of Policy at the King's Fund, the health think tank, about how feasible he thinks it is for the NHS to go directly to the city. There's some big issues before this uh, this would work. Um, uh, one of them is... Uh, if you borrow money from hedge funds, it's likely you're going to have to pass a value for money test. And it's almost always cheaper for the government to borrow than for NHS bodies to borrow. That was a struggle in PFI. Uh, and you could sometimes add in extra services into the contract, which is why they tended to be very long term. You passed over FM. So it wasn't just about borrowing money. So there's a value for money test um, that I think is quite tricky to get round. Um, particularly for... Um, uh, if you think about PFI, uh, one of the ways to get the uh, interest rate, effectively the rate you pay down, was for the government to guarantee it. Mm. So there was a deed of safeguard. So you can borrow it from the private sector, but in fact it was backed by Her Majesty's government. And in the end, of course, it just scored to public spending as if they had borrowed it themselves, which then raises the question, does it... Why? What, why have you done it in the first place? Mm. You, can, you can avoid doing that if you say that if a, if a trust borrowed the money from um, a hedge fund and it didn't pay it back, then the government will not stand behind it. The reason why that wasn't done in PFI is it put the interest rate, <laughs> they became unaffordable well, because you wouldn't the do it. the same would be the case then for the hedge funds. And fund. so it's really tricky to do that now. And the hedge funds, oh, just as the banks before them, uh, if you borrow money, they want security. Mm. So if you were UCLH and you borrowed a lot of money off them and you didn't pay it back, what does the hedge fund get as its security? And of course, the answer usually is well, nothing. Um, so you got you you got you get caught between: is it really just public borrowing, in which case just do it more cheaply from the government, and how you overcome issues around getting enough security in the system? Now, it's not impossible. It obviously works in primary care because general practice is not part of. They're not NHS yeah. trusts. They're not NHS bodies. It doesn't score to the public sector. So you can do things in primary care and often in community settings you can't do elsewhere. And it may be if you um, uh, by coming at this again, thinking about a really well-resourced NHS negotiating team that was closely linked to the Treasury to know just how far Treasury would go before things end up, as PFI did, scoring straight back to mm. Philip Hammond's numbers. Uh, there may be a de deal in there that you could do. It may be that you could provide some security around some of this surplus land that we're talking about. The NHS doesn't really need it. Um, but that, for that, you need um, a really good negotiating team, either in the department or in a trust. It's very difficult for a trust to get that. Yeah. 
um, to try and work through the complications of the deal. Um, uh, and you need Treasury incredibly close to it before they go, hang on a minute, it'd be an awful lot cheaper if you borrowed it from us. Um, and we don't want you to borrow it from us because we're trying to get public spending down. We can't go off leaving the public sector with liabilities yes, that they have to yeah, stand yeah. behind. So it it's, sounds great. Um, uh, the reason why it hasn't been done very much is because it hits problems like that. And PFI ran straight into a lot of these issues. So as I say, um, you borrowed it from the private sector, but the private sector wanted the deed of safeguard. Yeah. So effectively, it was the government doing it. Yeah. You had to you had to do lots of contracts that involved lots of FM in them too to try and make sure that they still made sense. Yeah. What's FM to do? Uh, facilities management. Right, so course, it's not yeah. only it's not only the building, but they take over some of the management of it. Yeah, and that, of course, that's what PFI hospitals did. Yeah, and that right. gets around some of these problems because you're also buying other services. So it's kind of effectively hiding part of the cost within that. Yeah, what you what you would argue is that um, some of the things like facilities management, it's not really the core skill of uh, the NHS. What the NHS does is deliver clinical services, and so it could be that the private sector, whose job that is, could possibly do it better. Yeah. And, and 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 you know, although there are some examples of uh, you know PFIs that have caused terrible financial problems to the organisation they're in, quite a lot didn't. Quite a lot of them aren't that bad. Um, uh, uh, and issues improvement did a review on things that had driven deficits um, in NHS trusts and in general PFIs helped them mm-hmm. so on average uh, the presence of a PFI was a good thing meant your finances were better now there are outliers the one that kind of slightly catastrophic deals I think that's the ones um, we always hear about the, the famous ones but you yeah. forget there are an awful lot of PFI deals and if, if your choice is between running out of an extremely old pre-1948 hospital or having a slightly expensive PFI mm. a lot of trusts very rightly thought I'll have the slightly more expensive modern PFI yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, but uh, uh, you know again they could might possibly been able to be done cheaper if you just borrowed the money straight off the government in the first place yeah, yeah. I've just what was the difference between those expensive ones that didn't really work out and the, the ones that were um, some of the earlier ones were more troubled before the NHS got better at it right. um, and then uh, if there was a common feature about some of the ones that have gone wrong, it was getting the size of the organisation wrong. So either they built too big or too small, right. and then you get trapped into a very long-term contract with an inappropriately sized building. Um, so getting that planning function right at the start was pretty key. Yeah.